Okay. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to open up to Haggai, chapter 1. We're almost there. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So what I'm thinking I'm going to do is, if the Lord tarries and we get through the Old Testament, we will be finishing that in two weeks, God willing, and then I think I'm going to leave at least a week or two for questions. Uh, We haven't done question and answer in a long time, so I'd like to leave a little bit of space if people have questions that they want to throw out to me. We'll have me have some time. If there's questions, we'll do some Q&A for a week or two, depending on how many questions come in, and then we might, uh, we'll spend some time diving back into the New Testament, and then, yeah, and that's it. And we'll see after that, after that, the Lord's coming. So anyway, I'm kidding. Um, Hopefully not. Uh, not kidding, I mean. So let's look at it. So we got two chapters. It's a very short book. Um, 38 verses. 1,130 words. Uh, let me get there with you. If you look at verse 1, it says, In the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai, the prophet, unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying. So it happens in the second year of Darius, so we're talking about approximately 520 B.C. That's where we are. So it places us. The fact that we know it's in Darius' reign, it's around 520 B.C., depending on who you read. To give you a little bit of historical context, the time of Haggai is when a famous philosopher, perhaps you know his name, Confucius, was flourishing in China. So you kind of have a little bit of sense of where you are now. Confucius is over there in China saying things, and people say, Confucius says, right? So that's, he was saying stuff back then. And here you have Haggai preaching. Uh, He is a post-exile prophet, meaning he worked with Zechariah and he, after the captivity, he is a post-captivity, post-exile prophet. Haggai Zechariah and Malachi, your last three prophets of your Old Testament, are the three prophets that are post, you want to sound smart, post-exilic or post-exile, post-captivity. They've come back to the land after captivity for 70 years, and now they're trying to rebuild. Um, Zechariah prophesied for three years. This is Zechariah. I know we're not doing Zechariah, but Zechariah prophesied for three years. Haggai only prophesied for three months and 24 days. So kind of a short stint. (laughs) Three months and 24 days, according to the the, the, the months and the timing given in his book. His name means my feast. My feast. Possibly given in joyous anticipation of their return to the land and all the feasting and and joy that that might have brought. And I want you to kind of I know I might step out of the frame here for a second, but that's okay. I want you to kind of get this context of the book here. Maybe I'll stand over here. Um, 536 B.C., we've got, and again, those dates are somebody's dates. They, you might find somebody that has different dates, but I'll just use those because they're, you know, just to get, draw a line in the sand. 50,000 Jews under Zerubbabel returned to Jerusalem after 70 years of captivity. So they didn't all go back, and that's a message in itself why they didn't all go back because some of them liked living in Babylon. That's why they didn't all go back. But 50,000, a remnant, goes back. And in 536 B.C., in the seventh month, the seventh month, and I'm, and I'm not making these up or guessing, right? when you read through Ezra and Nehemiah and these minor prophets like Haggai and Zechariah, you see they start to rebuild the altar. And that's the first thing you always have to rebuild. You have to get back to the place of sacrifice when you're on to rebuild something. Uh, In 535 B.C., in the second month, they start building the temple, or I should say rebuilding the temple, and then it stops. Difficulties, laziness, complacency, they don't really get going too good, and then the building stops. And you'll notice now, we've got about a 15-year gap here, where the temple is lying waste. They're not building the temple And that's when Haggai calls on the people to start building. He starts preaching. Uh, Two months after Haggai starts preaching, Zechariah starts preaching. And then two months after that, 
Zechariah starts having visions. And next week, God willing, if we get into Zechariah, you could tell me what it means. Because it has uh, a lot of visions that Zechariah has. This is all starts happening in that year 520. 518 B.C., Zechariah starts having further visions. 516 B.C., the temple is built. Right? Took about three and a half years, and the temple is built. Um, and then on 515 B.C., shortly after the temple is built, they keep this great grand Passover. Uh, and that's usually what happened, right? That was the beginning of their calendar, and that was the, uh, the celebration of their memorial of coming out of Egypt. So in that time, 515, you start to see Ezra, right? Ezra starts bringing reformation to Jerusalem, and Nehemiah starts building the wall while Malachi is prophesying. So you have a little bit of a context now what's going on, how it's playing out. Uh, the key phrase you see on your page there, if you have a paper, is the word of the Lord. It appears five times. And those five times appear, line up with the five big messages that Haggai preaches in this book. Let's look at the key verses, Haggai 1.14. Let's read that verse. <clears throat> Haggai 1.14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. So that's a great verse there because that stirring up, God stirs some people up and they start building. That would be right back over here, right? That's back here. And then if you go to, so that was good, right? God stirred some people up to say, let's rebuild the temple. Because you know what? Everything about the Jews' life revolved around the temple, right? Worship was in the temple. You met God at the temple. Everything circulates around the temple. Even in the tribulation, Jews that are far off, the promise is if they will turn again and pray towards the temple, God will heal their sin and forgive their land. You read about that's what he tells Solomon in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. That's a tribulation promise. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, right? He's talking about praying towards this place. You know about a religion that prays towards a certain place? Amen. It's just a copycat of God. I mean, every lie is the truth either misapplied or just spun around. So God says, yeah, you need to pray towards this place. Now, we pray through Jesus Christ because he's a temple, Amen. right? Amen. He said, my body's a temple, John chapter 2. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. But literally, those Jews in the Old Testament, and, and they, they reached out toward the temple. And in the Great Tribulation, they'll be praying out towards the temple. That's why it's so important that the temple gets built before the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And if you, you, know, you do any reading, you see people saying, oh, we could put the temple up in 48 hours. They say that they have plans to erect a temple in 48 hours. We think, well, the tribulation is going to be so far away. No, these guys know, even though they may not be saved, these, these lost Jews know how important the temple is towards their worship of God and towards their Messiah coming back. And so they know how to erect that temple very soon. So now watch what happens in Haggai 2.9. So Haggai 1.14, they're getting stirred up. They start building the temple or rather rebuilding the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed. And Haggai 2.9, a little bit of time has uh, uh, passed and they've got that temple going. And it says, the glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts, and in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. So again, so much about the temple is in the book of Haggai, so much about the temple. The theme of the book is God should be first in life and service. Amen. Yikes. Yowzer. Zing. Thanks, Brother Haggai. It's going to burn, I know. But it's so much about building for God, working for God, following God, building His temple, and your temple in the process. And if you look at verse number 7 in chapter 2, Jesus Christ is pictured as the desire of all nations. It says, and I will shake all nations, we'll talk about that verse later, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Amen, amen, amen. Can't wait for that day. We sing, hark the herald angels sing, and the last verse reads, Come, desire of nations, come, fix in us your, our hum, your humble home, right? He is called the desire of nations because even though the world doesn't know it, Jesus is who they really want. They want a righteous leader, I got one. They want a just judge, I got one. They want peace on earth, I know one. 
Jesus Christ is going to bring to the earth, what mankind has always wanted is just they don't like the righteousness. <laughs> they don't like the holiness. They don't like the accountability to Father God. They like Mother Nature, but they don't like Father God. So he's going to come and he's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. We're all looking for, you know, that politician, right? That's going to ride in, you know, on that debate stage. And, you know, this one's going to write the wrong, and that one's going to write the wrong, and this one's going to do it. I got a candidate that'll trump everybody else, all right? And his name is Jesus Christ. And when he comes, man, it's going to be what the world has been looking for. And uh, he is the desire of all nations. So the breakdown is pretty simple, as you notice on your page. Five messages. We got a message of rebuke, a message of commendation, a message of courage, a message of assurance, and a message of destruction at the end of the book. But it's not just it's destruction for the world, but safety for the remnant if they stay close to him. You'll notice that these messages are all over the place. Some of them are harsh, some of them are comforting, and we'll talk about that later. So let's get into some Bible pictures and important truths in the book. We okay so far? Say amen. It's so far away, I have to hear it louder. All right. Um, big idea. I'm not big idea, but a, a big truth in this book. The Lord wants you to think about where you are in your walk with Him. You know, when you're building anything, you know, guys do this a lot, right? You're building something, and then you know what they do? They step back. And they got to lean, you know, they lean back. And they look at what they're building. When you're building something, you usually don't just rip through it without stopping to consider what you're doing. And in this book about building, God is saying, hey man, you got to stop. Consider, think, ponder the path of your feet. What are you building? How are you building? Is your priority right in a book about building? And you would do that, you know, my wife and I, which we'll probably never ever do again, hopefully. She's shaking her head back there. We laid some paver steps on a curve in our backyard. Very grueling. Um, very, um, very reassessing. <laughs> very, oh no, we need to cut more. Oh no, we need to level more. Honey, bring some more gravel, right? So that, you know, it's constantly evaluating and reevaluating and considering. And such it is when you build for God. And that's a big thought in the book of Haggai, stopping and every once in a while considering your ways. The Lord likes to ask questions, doesn't he? I mean, as soon as man fell, what did God do? Adam, or art thou? God knew where he was. <laughs> he was the guy with the fig leaf bikini hanging out in the back of the garden over there. But he said he wanted Adam to stop and say, hey, Adam, where are you in your relationship and your walk with me? That's a great question. You know, there's four questions God asks Adam after his fall. You should study those because there's a great lesson in those four questions. But he asked that and that. And then what the Lord likes to also do, not just ask questions, but he likes to do something which I jokingly tell my students you don't often do in school. He likes to provoke you to think. Right? He likes to make you think. I tease my students sometimes that you'll go through your school. I kind of like this area here. It's nice. Right? <laughs> you'll go through your schooling and you'll regurgitate facts. All right? Corresponding parts of congruent triangles are congruent, right? You'll keep spitting that out on a geometry proof, or, you know, the Ming Dynasty started here and ended here. But there's not a lot of thinking that goes on. Processing, evaluating, actually synthesizing and analyzing, right? But it's like that in the Christian life. We go to church, we read our Bibles, we hand out tracts, but how much of it is you actually stopping, pondering, considering Thinking, and God says, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. God's not afraid of you using the brain that he gave you. I mean, believing God, trusting the Bible, following Jesus Christ is the most logical, rational thing that could ever happen to you. Amen. When I got saved, it was not an emo I was emotional because I had, God had to bring me to the end of my rope, but it wasn't an emotional decision. It was possibly the most logical thing I'd ever heard. I was like, oh, I'm a sinner who's flawed and broken, and you're a Savior that's perfect and righteous, and you stood in my place to make a vicarious substitution for me and, and save my soul. To me, it wasn't like I didn't, it wasn't an emotional thing, right? It was, oh, that's why he died. <laughs> 
And it just—it was just very logical for me. Why wouldn't I trust him if he died on the cross? You see, you have somebody said many years ago, you got to get the facts, and once you start to rely on the facts, you get some faith. And once your faith gets strong, then you get that feeling, right? We always want the feeling. I just want to feel victorious. What does victorious feel like? You know? No, you get victorious. You get some joy when you start to stand on facts. That gives you faith. And then you say, you know what? Yeah, God does love me. God does care. You start to get that feeling. All right? This has nothing to do with anything in my notes. But okay, keep going. So the Lord liked to ask a lot of questions in the book of Haggai. Look at Haggai 1.4. I'm just trying to show you that God was trying to get you to evaluate your building and think while you're here. Look at Haggai 1.4. Look at this. Remember, Haggai starts preaching while the temple had been lying dormant for years. Haggai 1.4. Is it time for you, O ye, that means all of you, to dwell in your sealed houses? And this house, meaning the temple, lieth waste? I mean, he's saying... Is it sensible to ignore God's house and worry about your own? I mean, isn't that a logical question to ask you? I know we got to mow our lawns and we got to do our laundry and we got to fix things that are broken. And I know it's nice to make things look nice, like putting pavers steps in your backyard so you can walk down to the koi pond and not step in the mud. And I know sometimes you do some projects like that. I get it. But God's saying, is it making sense for you to leave my work dormant while you work on your stuff? I know we all got to do our stuff, but he's saying, don't do your stuff at the expense of my stuff. Right? I know people that make up some amazing excuses for not coming to church. <laughs> got to, you know, close the pool. I got to, you know, clean the house. I got to, you know, rake the leaves. I'm like, okay, that's what you got to do, brother. That's between you and God. But God's saying, is it, is it, is it time for you? Is that what this time is for? <laughs> it's a tough question. Haggai 2.19 is another one of the questions he asks. This is a tough one, too. Man, he, has some, he gives you some doozies. Look at Haggai 2.19. Is the seed yet in the barn? Yikes. Man. He's saying, are you using what I've given you to work with? The seed doesn't do any good if it's sitting in the barn. It's got to get out of the barn and get in the ground. Now, we could apply that verse to a million things. How about your Bibles? Is the seed yet in the barn? You know all these verses. Are you doing anything with the verses? You're applying the verses at all? Trying to live any verses out? It would be better to know 10 verses that you live than 10,000 that you don't live. Right? So, same thing with witnessing, right? We have this big town and this big state, you got family and friends all around you. We got, uh, you know, we got track racks that we put out on Sunday mornings and stuff like that. We have all these materials. Is the seed yet in the barn? Is it just sitting in you, just stockpiling all this information that you know about dispensations and, and rightly dividing and covenants and, you know, all this information about God? What is that doing to help your family, help your neighbor, help your community, help the people at your job? Is the seed yet in the barn? I didn't ask the question. God asked it through Haggai. And not just questions. The Lord provokes His people to think. He uses the word consider four times in the book. We don't do a lot of considering. We're so busy. We're so plugged in. We're so motoring along that we never stop to think. And God said, think on these things. He said, think these thoughts. He said, ponder the path of your feet. He said, consider your ways. God says, let us reason together. Thinking's good. The Bible is meant to provoke you to think. And look at Haggai 1.5. I heard a great message years ago with a guy with a brogue that he was saying this. Consider your ways. It was like a really dramatic message. I'm not even going to try it, but... He says there in Haggai 1, 5, and 7, he says the same thing. He says, consider your ways. That's powerful. The Lord's saying, what are you doing or not doing for me? Consider your ways. All right? I'll give it a little bad brogue there. Consider, stop, think about what you're doing or not doing for me. Ever gotten so crazy doing something you have to stop or somebody stops and says, Pat, what are you doing? Or you say to yourself, what am I doing? It's good. 
I remember being newly saved, walked away from God, left church, walked out of a place where I shouldn't have been, and walked down Alphabet City, Manhattan, and literally out loud screaming to the high heavens, saying, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing? And it kind of like propelled me to get my butt back in church because sometimes it's good to stop and go, what am I doing? Like, I'm chasing this money, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. It's like, what am I doing? Because the second the trumpet sounds, you are going to get such a culture shock and a gut check and a priority realignment, you'll wish to God, literally, that you thought about what am I doing before that trumpet blasted. And uh, we got to stop and think, he's saying. Look at chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Then answered Haggai and said, So is this people, so is this nation before me, saith the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and that which they offer there is unclean. And now I pray you, consider from this day and upward, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days were, when one came to an heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the press fat for to draw 50 vessels out of the press, there were but 20. I smote you with blasting and with mildew and with hail and all the labors of your hands, yet ye turn not to me, saith the Lord. Consider now, from this day and upward, from the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. He's saying, man, think about what you lose when you fail to build for God. They laid the foundation, and you quit, you dropped it, you what happened, and now you're looking for stuff and you're not finding it. And I poured judgment upon you. He said, I've blasted you with mildew and with hail to ruin your crops because he's saying, look what you're losing because you're putting me second, third, fourth, fifth. Isn't it the truth? Haven't you found it so? That when you put the work of God first, you suddenly found you had the time for the, all the other stuff you had to do. But when you pushed God off to the side and said, I got to do this, and I got to do that, and I got to do this, you never seemed to have enough time. You just kept chasing your tail. But when you finally said, all right, Lord, I'm going to Bible study, or I'm going to this, or I'm going to this fair, I'm going to carve out some time, Lord, I'm going to put you first, and Lord, you just help me out with the other stuff. You know what? You always seem to find the time then. This is a phenomenon. It's like God says, son, stand now still, or something like that. Uh, or maybe you just priorities get right, and you don't get so crazy chasing all the carnal stuff. So, but you always lose when you don't build for God. When you put God on the back burner, and you leave Him there, because, the, see, the foundation was laid. And if you're saved, the foundation is laid. Amen. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, First Corinthians chapter 3, I think, verse 11. Right? So if you're saved, you got the foundation laid. Now if any man build upon this foundation, and a lot of people get saved, and they never build. And God's saying, if you don't build, you just, you're wasting stuff. Now, Haggai 2.3. If Haggai is about building for God, building the temple for God, the book of Haggai talks about three temples. All right, I'm not going to read all these verses, but I'll list them for you here. Haggai 2.3 is talking about the temple under Solomon. Right? Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? That was Solomon, right? Solomon's temple was glorious, covered in gold. You must have come through the desert, seen the desert sun shining on this edifice covered in gold. It must have been a sight to see. Second temple talked about. Verses 3 to 5 is the temple under Zerubbabel. The temple they're rebuilding. Right? And how do you see it now? Because they're building another temple there. That's the second temple talked about in the book of Haggai. But then if you jump over to verse number 6, you see it alludes to the temple under the Messiah. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. That's not the temple under Zerubbabel. That thing's been destroyed. That's the temple under the Messiah that he's going to move into and fill with glory. So three temples talked about in the book of Haggai, because Haggai is so much about 
the temple and building the temple for God. Now, if you're taking notes, I thought I would just give this to you. There are seven temples mentioned in the Bible. Seven temples. Okay? Uh, yeah, why not? I'll leave that up. Number one, Solomon's temple. Destroyed by the Babylonians. Approximately 586 B.C. Number two, Zerubbabel's temple, built after the return from captivity. Number three, Herod's temple. Herod's temple, because he built a temple for the Jews to appease them, right? Herod, that, um, that Roman kind of like puppet. Uh, this was, that was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D., Number four, fourth one, Christ's body. John chapter two, he spake of the temple of his body. Destroy this temple and after three days I will raise it up. Christ's body is a temple. Number five, believers' bodies. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. What, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and ye are not your own? Number six, the millennial temple. Ezekiel chapter 40, chapter 40 to 48. The millennial temple. You read all about it in Ezekiel. It's, it's tough reading. Who's got the line in his hand and the plumb line and this stuff? It's, it's not the most devotional, edifying reading. A little bit, there's glimpses, but it's really all about the millennium and the millennial temple. And then the seventh one is the heavenly temple. Talked about in Hebrews chapter 9 and Revelation 11. It talks about that they see into heaven and there's a temple in heaven. So, seven temples in the Word of God. And so much of your walk with God revolves around the temple. When Israel returned from captivity, what did they do? They rebuilt the temple. When you return to the Lord after being away for a while, you know what happens? You go back and you start rebuilding your temple. The question is, implicitly in this book is, are you working on your walk or letting it lie waste? Are you building your temple for God or wasting your time? That's the big mm of the book of Haggai. Look at Haggai 2.6. Here we are. He says, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, that's a reference to the great tribulation, a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. So Jesus Christ is coming to shake all man has built at the end of the great tribulation. You understand that? He says, I'm coming back at the end of the great tribulation. is going to shake, rattle, and roll. I'm going to shake not just the earth, he says. He goes, I shook the earth when I spoke in Mount Sinai. But when I come back, I'm not just going to shake the earth, I'm going to shake the earth and the heaven, and all those things that shouldn't be there are going to be removed. And what I want to stay is going to stay. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. I'll show you. Hebrews chapter 12 is a quotation of Haggai chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 12. And brother... When God shakes something, only what's built for Him is going to stand, right? You build something, you move it, you see if it's sturdy, you put enough screws in it, but okay, it might stand. But, you know, if something is not built on God's foundation, and when He comes back and He shakes it up, it ain't going to stand. It ain't going to stand. And literally here, God is going to shake things up. Hebrews 12, 25. See that you refuse not Him that speaketh. Again, put yourself in a tribulation context because Hebrews has a direct application to the Jews in that tribulation when Jesus Christ is coming again. Here we are at the end of the book of Hebrews, which is the end of that tribulation time. The kingdom is being reinstated. And he says, See that you refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away him that speak from him that speaketh from heaven. 
whose voice then shook the earth, right? He came down on Mount Sinai right above it, and he spake on the earth, and he shook, and it rattled, and it rolled, and it scared people. Whose voice then shook the earth, reference to Mount Sinai. Psalm 68 tells us that. But now, but now, but now, he hath promised, saying, yet once more, I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. The first one's Mount Sinai. The second one is Mount Sion. And he says, And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and fear, for our God is a consuming fire. That's literally doctrinally talking about God, Jesus Christ, returning at the end of the tribulation, shaking things, and that fire consuming things. But we could spiritualize it, can't we? The judgment seat of Christ is going to definitely shake some things up. It's going to turn your world upside down and it's going to see what it was made of. So let's, having said that, let's get into two big ideas in the book of Haggai. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. With that said about what will remain and what will not remain. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Who could tell me, class, what is the topic of 1 Corinthians 15 in one word? Say it. Resurrection. Very good. Give her a gold star, Josh. All right? All right? For resurrection. It's always good to know somebody's paying attention. Right? You made my month. All right? Resurrection. And at the end of that chapter, it's about really building up to your resurrected body, to the change that's coming to those that know Jesus Christ. Even so, may it be tonight. May he hasten that, right? Um, but look what he says at the end of the chapter. Look at the conclusion that he draws. Therefore, because Jesus Christ is coming, because Jesus Christ is going to give you a brand new body, because Jesus Christ is going to give you this supernatural change and resurrect you to this new life to live eternally with Him, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding. That's an important word. In the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He's saying if the Lord is coming, we should be abounding in His work. Not paltry in His work, not meager in His work, not doing the bare minimum like 99.9% of the Christian world. Hey, what are you getting on me for, Pat? I came to church twice this month. Twice. That's huge. Right? What are you getting on me for, Pat? I came to Bible study once this year. <laughs> Applause. Cue. <laughs> right? right? We get like that with God. Hey, God, did you see me pray this month? Did you see that? Did you see me go to the fair and hand out tracts? I'm good now, God. I don't have to get crazy now. Not fanatical now. He's saying in there, abounding in the work of the Lord. If you know Jesus Christ is coming back, and you know He's giving it in you a brand new body, and if you know that the glory that will be given to that body may be dependent on the work you do and don't do for him, because it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that he says in verse 41, 42, 43 about how different bodies will get different levels of glory. If you know that's going to come to you, Christian, that you're going to get a brand new body and that the glory that you have may be contingent upon the work you do now or don't do now, hey, you better give it all you got. That's basically what he's saying. I'm not going to, I can't sugarcoat it. I'm preaching to myself just like you because I can get complacent and get in the funk also. He's saying, kick yourself in the pants, consider your ways, right? Wake up, ponder the path of your feet, and give it everything you got because the bell's about to sound, the workday's about to be over, and the master's coming to reward his laborers. And if you know that's coming and you believe that's coming, and if I ask you to tell me, do you believe that? You say, amen, yes, glory. If I ask you to do that and you're not abounding, consider your ways. <laughs> Think a little bit about what you're doing and not doing. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You see, this is dangerous because now that I have room to move, I just feel like I need to fill it with with. with, with Italian. All right. Um, 1 Corinthians 3, 
Versus when I'm pinned back against the books over there, I'm afraid they're going to fall on my head, so I, I'm a little bit more controlled. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9. These are some of the scariest verses in the Bible. You know that? The judgment seat of Christ is a scary doctrine. Amen. It's called a terror. Yeah. Pastor Mel, Ray might remember this. I don't know if he used to say it when he was around you, but Pastor Mel would come back and preach your first Bible, Pastor Mel, and he will always say that the judgment seat of Christ is the most forgotten doctrine among churches today. And if there were more preaching on the judgment seat of Christ, there might be more abounding laborers. But uh, I would bet if you asked 100 Christians today, if you could find 100 today in your vicinity and ask them to describe the judgment seat of Christ, I wonder what kind of answers you'd get back. I wonder if you know what the doctrine is. I had somebody who sat where you sat tell me, I don't like that doctrine. I don't like it. I don't think God is like that. I said, of course your God isn't like that because you made one in your own image. Your God doesn't exist. It's like the God that won't send people to hell. You think God... He'll hold the sinner accountable. You don't think he's going to hold the saint accountable? Not about going to heaven, about a reward, right? About a reward to reign with him in his kingdom. You're going to go to heaven if you're saved by the grace of God, by the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But hey, he said, I gave you something. I laid a serious foundation. Are you building? You're doing anything with what I gave you? Is the seed yet in the barn? Consider your ways. All right, 1 Corinthians 3, 9. For we are laborers. That's worker, right? Labor, work. We are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. According to the grace of God which is given unto me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. Now listen, you know what the work really is? The work really is you dying to yourself. The more you put yourself down, the more God can lift you up. It's the grace of God working through you. Don't get, don't get me wrong. But there is a work that you have to perform to kind of lay yourself on that altar that Jesus Christ might be magnified. As, uh, and, other, uh, and another build it thereon. But let every man take heed, that's a great verse, how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Are you saved? Say amen. amen. Glory. Now, 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 if, 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 see it? There's your will. There's your choice. There's your decision. If any man build upon this foundation, Jesus Christ, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, etc., etc., the judgment seat of Christ will be a review of how we've built or not built for God. He warns you now, consider your ways. Because there's a consideration day coming. Consider your ways now, and you will do better in that day. Live blindly, Live ignorantly, live like you've got a thousand tomorrows and God doesn't care that you just eat, drink, and be merry. It's going to be tough when He examines you with those eyes of fire. Just is. Go back to Haggai. We'll finish in Haggai. I got a few verses. Oh, yeah. Haggai. Haggai chapter 2. Look at verse number 4. Who could He tell Zerubbabel? Making any sense? Amen. All right. He says, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, O ye people of the land, saith the Lord. And here it is. Ready to see the next two words? And work. And work. And work. For I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. You know what God wants you to do now that you're saved? If you're His people, work. Right. Work. Work out your own salvation. Be careful to maintain good works. These are good and profitable unto men. You know how tracts get handed out? By you putting them in your hands and going somewhere to give them to people. You know how folks get help? By you bowing your heart and praying, laboring in prayer, the Bible talks about. You know how somebody uh, learns their Bible? By cracking it open, getting a pencil, a pen, a highlighter, and taking the time to figure out how that thing is put together. It's work. It's work. It's work. It's work. It's a curse word among Christians today. It's a four-letter curse word. Work. Right? Work. I just want it to be fun. 
it isn't all fun. There's fun when, you know, we, we have a burger together, we, you know, throw a ball around together. There's fun to be had when you're saved, but it's not all fun. It wasn't fun for these guys to go up the Congo. It wasn't fun for your Savior to go on the cross. It wasn't fun for people to be hiding in caves in, in North, you know, North Africa. It's not fun. It's work. It's work to get Bibles published. It's work to get you know, family straightened out. It's work to kind of counsel people. It's work to come to church. It's work to get the kids' memory verses in their minds. It's work to have that family devotions maybe before they go to bed. It's work. It's work. It's work. Yeah, it takes work. God says, be strong and work. I'm with you. Work. David Livingston, great missionary up the Congo. He said something I've quoted before. I just love it. He said, fear God and work hard. That's it. A lot of people don't work hard anymore, even in the secular world. We talk about privilege, privilege, privilege. Everything's about privilege now. Check your privilege. I want your privilege. Power and privilege. God says, work, work, work. Look at Haggai 1-2. Now here comes the hammers. Right? Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. You know what happens to people? We know, we say, Should you work for God? Yeah! Roar! Do the wave, yeah, we get all excited, we can hop you up, I can, you know, you know, just, you know, you're saved, yeah, you want to see Jesus come, yeah, you want to work for God, yeah, 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 we'll just, we can rev everybody up, say the right catchphrases, get everybody revved up, wave the Bible, put the plant on your head, march around, wing a hymnal at somebody, I don't know, the crazy stuff I've seen people do that Josh and some of you have seen people do, we don't do that stuff, you wing a hymnal at somebody, we're going to wing it back at you and ask you to leave. Don't throw a hymnal. But we've been around some places. You get people all revved up, pumped up, you know, like, like a football thing. Like, yeah, Jesus is coming. Yeah, the king, bless God, the King James Bible. I believe the cover to cover and even the cover. Amen. You got the seven seals on yours. Yeah, amen. Glory to God. I got a Cambridge too. Right? <laughs> but they're not working for God. Because then they walk out of the church house and they just go about their merry day. And we say, well, the time has not come. I don't have to do this now. I got more time. I'm young. I'm old. I'm this. I'm that. I can do it tomorrow. I'll do it when I, you know, get this money put away. I'll do it when I'm retired. I'll work for God when I'm this. I'll work for God when I'm that. That's what they were saying then, because that's what we say now. The time has not come. Oh, no. (laughs) Come on a Thursday? Are you crazy? Are you nuts? (laughs) Watch it on YouTube? I got dishes to do. Oh. Put it on while you do the dishes. All right. How about he, Haggai 1.4? You know what's funny sometimes? Sometimes I make allusions on a Sunday to stuff I know people didn't listen to me say on a Thursday. And I watch the faces and people in the crowd. Like, what's he talking about? Like, I do it on purpose sometimes just to see that. You know, it's an awkward moment for the both of us. Um, I've had people ask me things and I'd be like, you know, I'm starting Bible study in five minutes. Like, oh, I forgot. Sorry. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I'm sure you'll be watching. Um, if you're at home right now, thanks for being here. All right. Haggai 1.4. Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses and this house lie waste? Is it right to put your house before God's house? And I don't mean the church house at all. I just mean God's building, God's program. Is that right? Does that make sense to you? Look at Haggai 1.5. Watch here now how the Lord implores His people to consider what they're doing. He says, Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Think about it, think about it, think about it. Amen this if you agree with me. Everything you build for yourself will go up in smoke at the judgment seat of Christ. Is that an amen? Amen. You believe that? I'm not lying, right? I'm not making that up. I'm not trying to twist you, manipulate you. Everything you do for self, meaning, I don't mean like, I got, you got to brush your teeth. I don't mean that. I mean, the stuff that you just gobble up your life for you is just going to go up in smoke. Okay, give me another amen if you believe this next statement. Everything you build for Jesus Christ will go into eternity at the judgment seat of Christ. You believe that? So you believe everything you do for the wrong reason will go up in smoke, and everything you do for the right reason will abide the fire and bring a reward to you that will go into eternity. We all believe that, right? Amen? Hallelujah? Okay then why would a Christian waste his time on self if it's all going to burn? Consider your ways. 
That's what he's saying. Consider your ways. He's like, think about what you're doing. You know that everything done for the wrong reason is going to blow up and everything done for the right reason is going to abide the fire and reward you and bless you down here and take it into eternity. Why wouldn't you put all your chips on that one? Verse 6. Now watch what he's... Now watch this. In 6 and 7, you're going to see him talk about the suffering you endure from a lack of priorities. That's what this Haggai is about. Our priorities are screwed up. Somebody told me something a very long time ago. It was Jim Scroy. He said, you always have time for what's important to you. Profound, but dead-on true. Because I was a young Christian looking at things, and I was like, why is this person doing that? Why does that person do this? I was like, you know, what's going on? He said, you always have time for what's important to you. Well, I can't get to this, and I can't get to that. I can't go on the street. I can't do this, and I can't pray. I can't, you know, all the stuff we do. We're pretty busy, aren't we? Amen? I mean, we're trying to give you all different things that you could do, you know? And I'm not saying you've got to do things with us to serve God, but, you know, it's good to work in the church, right? The Bible talks about getting glory in the church. So we go to fairs. We have prayer meetings. We have Bible studies. We have church things. We have fellowships. We have men's meetings, ladies' things, things for the youth, things for this, things for that. You know, there's lots of stuff for you to plug in, and everybody's got an excuse, I gotta wash my hair. I gotta wash my dog's hair. Like, I got all these excuses. People always make time for what's important to them. Well, if only I could. You have time to get up tomorrow for work, right? You know why? Because you need that. It's important to you. You just don't want it bad enough. We just don't want Jesus Christ bad enough. Might as well just level with him. I don't want you enough. You're not important enough to me. And that's what Haggai is doing. He's saying, hey guys, You've got the wrong priorities. And here's what happens when you have the wrong priorities. I told you it was rough. Maybe it's good I'm distant from you here. Look at verse number six. You looked, you've sown much and bring in little. He says when you get the wrong priorities, you know what you're going to have? No fruit. No fruit. You could sow much, but bring in little. Busy, 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 but there's no fruit for God. How about number two? You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You know what you get? You know what you lose also? You have no satisfaction when you don't put God first. You have no satisfaction. You stuff in your face, and it's not enough. You make the house bigger, better, more beautiful. You're still dissatisfied because the Joneses are still 10 feet, 20 feet, a half a mile down the road ahead of you, and you're trying to keep up with the Joneses. You're never satisfied. The car's not as fast as the next one. The house isn't as beautiful as this one. And you just keep consuming stuff upon your lusts. And you eat and eat and eat and drink and drink and drink. And it's just never enough. No satisfaction. Ah, godliness with, with contentment is great gain. Be content with such things as you have. How about this next one? He says, he says, ye clothe you, but there is none warm. No comfort. You're trying to get comfortable, you're trying to get warm, you're trying to get comfortable, but you just have no comfort, right? Because putting God second, third, fourth, fifth, 27th on the list, you don't have the comfort. When you're real close to Him, man, that's when you get the comfort. When you can lean on His chest at supper, that's when you get the comfort. Even though the world might be going to hell around you, you can get the comfort because you can hear His heart, like John did. That's the comfort. But if you put Him out of your life and put Him on the back burner, how are you ever going to feel the warmth if He's on the back burner? How about the next one? And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. No profit. You're putting your money into a bag with holes. That's a message for every Christian. That's a message for this nation. You know why your dollar is tanking? Because you put God at the bottom of the list. And your money is just going into a bag with holes. You ever see what a loaf of bread cost 40 years ago? It's the same loaf of bread. What a carton of eggs cost 40 years ago? It's the same carton of eggs. What a gallon of gas cost 40 years ago? It's the same product. How come your money is worth so much less? Well, it's because, you know, Bretton Woods and they came off the gold standard and the Federal Reserve. I know all that stuff. I know. But you know what it is? It's because you turned your back on God and God says, I'll make your gold and silver cankered. 
You're taking your money and you put it in a bag with holes. You're waiting. Just, I'm going to dissipate all that strength that you relied on. And the Federal Reserve, you know, Miss Yellen gets up there and we're going to raise rates. Oh, we're not going to raise rates. And we're going to play with the numbers. And we're going to put the printing press on or off. You think that's going to save you? It's never going to. It's not going to save you. And baby, as soon as the world realizes they don't need your dollar, it is on. Because the only thing keeping you afloat is the fact that your dollar is still the reserve currency of the world. And when the rest of the world starts getting fed up with you Americans and says, we don't need you, we'll make something like brick or we'll do something else. We'll make another dollar, we'll make another reserve currency. Watch how fast the boat starts to sink. And it's not because of geopolitics, because we've turned our back on God as a nation. And God says, I'm taking your money now and I'm deflating it. It's like it's going in a bag with a hole. Back maybe when I started working, oh, a six-figure salary sounded like, wow. Now, man, you know, you all doing putting the time in. You live in the Northeast. You got to try to keep your head above water on a six-figure salary. It's just because the money's going into a bag with holes. All right, keep going, keep going, keep going. Verse 9. It's a tough book, right? I'll say amen for you. Verse 9. Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when, I, when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts? Because of mine house that is waste, and ye run every man unto his own house. He's saying, man, you got no success. You're looking for it, but you're not bringing much back. And what you bring back, when you think you got something, God says, I just blow upon it, and you lose it. No success. Because why? Because you're worried about your house and not my house. And lastly here he says in verse number 10, Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit, and I called for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of the hands. He says, you're going to have no blessing, no growth, no blessing. I'm going to stay the dew. That stuff you need to refresh your land and the crops, I'm going to keep it back. I'm not going to bless it because you guys are not building for me. And if you won't build for God, you will waste your life. You know the Bible talks about losing your life and saving it? That's what he's talking about. Say, Lord, I got this little dash between two dates. I just want to give it to you. God says, you just saved your life. That'll abide the fire. It'll be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. You'll get to hold on to that into eternity. But when you save your life, say, no, no, mine, 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 it's all mine, right? When you say that, God says, then you lose it. But that's the principle. We've said, it, we've said it from the day that Pastor Mel started preaching it. Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool. Consider your ways. You know what it reminds me of? You ever take your little kids to the beach? And they want to build those sandcastles right near where the water's breaking. It's like fun. They think they're going to beat the waves. It's futile. It's like, and you laugh at it because you're like, all right, but that's not going to stay. It's not going to stick. It's not going to stay. That's what we get sometimes. We're building castles and the wave is coming. And God's like, the wave is coming. Why are you building over there? You should be building on the rock over here, but you're building on the sand over there. I'm going to wash that all away. And we laugh at little kids. They all look at them to being little kids, how immature, how foolish. They can't consider what they're doing, but you're supposed to be mature. Consider your ways. What are you building on? What am I building on? And the second big idea, go to Ezra chapter 5, and we'll close right here. It's much shorter, hopefully not as painful. All right, I know that's painful, but it's got to be said. I got to hear it. I mean, you're all right with God. That's great. I need, I need to hear that because that's easy to get motoring along and stop building the right way. Ezra chapter 5 will be our last verse. Ezra talks a lot about Haggai and Zechariah because, they're, again, they're concurrent. Ezra's post-exile with the remnant that's gone up. Let me give you four things about Haggai. My second big idea is this. Haggai is a model worker for God. He's a pattern for us to follow if we're going to build. All right? It's about building. Want to build for God? Want to follow God's program? Here are some things. Number one. He spends no time talking about himself. 
or his ministry. Read the book of Haggai. He doesn't say much about himself at all. Really nothing about himself. That's a good thing to follow. He exalts the Lord, and he exalts the Lord's work, and that's about it. And that's one of those tough lines to walk. Only the Spirit of God can discern it, because sometimes it's like you want to talk about all the stuff that you did for God, all the prayers you prayed, all the people you helped, and you, know, and you, want, to, you want to testify, and that's good. But it might be good for you sometimes to just witness to that person, pray that prayer, do that thing, and just zip it. Sometimes you've got to pr- bring out that testimony to encourage the brethren. I get it. You've got to praise the Lord. I get it. But sometimes it would be good just to don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. And let God exalt you from the rooftops. Haggai was like that. Number two, he always had a thus saith the Lord. All his messages, all, he, that expression, thus saith the Lord, four times. The word of the Lord, five times. He kept pointing people to the word of God. He was always the Lord's messenger. It wasn't his opinions. It wasn't his ideas. It was the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. That's a good lesson to prove. Someone says, well, what do you think about marriage? What do you think about this? The Bible says. I'm not going to give you my opinion about politics. The Bible says. I'm not going to give you my opinion about your relationship. The Bible says. I'm not giving you opinions about, you know, current events and, you know, all this stuff that sometimes people abuse the pulpit with. We're trying here. I'm trying anyway. I don't always do a good job, but I'm trying. The way I learned to, down from our, 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 our founding pastors and our pastors over us, to give people what the Bible says. It's what the Bible says. First, Bible church. Number three, and this is good, he not only rebuked people, he cheered people. He didn't just criticize people, he commended them. There was a little bit of, there was like salt and honey in his messages, right? His first message was a message of rebuke. His second message was a message of commendation. I'm with you. I rebuked you, but I'm with you. There's destruction, but then there's comfort. You see that? You want to work for God, you gotta have a balance. If it's all like, everything's great, you're a fake and a phony and you're just trying to be a cheerleader. If it's you smell a stink on everybody and everything, nobody's going to want to be around you. If everything is doom and gloom and I'm just, I got a, I got a weird eye towards everybody because I'm suspicious of everyone and everything, that paranoia is going to make people want to step back. That's not going impl- to bring growth. That's going to bring stifling. And if you're just like happy, happy, happy all the time and just have this artificial joy, that's also fake. There's got to be some, there's got to be some rebuke. There's got to be some commendation. Sometimes you got to tell somebody when they're doing something wrong. But hey, when they're doing something right, good job, brother. Good job, sister. Well done, brother. There's nothing wrong with that. We're so afraid of you know, artificially puffing people's heads up. Hey, read your Bible. Paul commends this one, and Paul commends that one, and Paul thanks God for this one, and Paul thanks God for that one. Because you know what? It's good to love on each other. Amen. If they get proud about it, that's between them and God. Not you drop the pride bubble in their, their head, and they're going to, that's it. No, it's no. And sometimes you got to deflate that balloon too sometimes. It's got to be that balance. That's what I'm saying. He was a model worker because he knew sometimes when to rebuke and sometimes when to say, God's with you. Keep going. And finally, Ezra 5, 1 and 2. Here's the last thing that we see in Haggai. He not only preached, he practiced. He lent a hand. He did it himself. See Ezra 5, 1 and 2? Then the prophets... Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. Then rose up Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Josedek and began to build the house of God which is at Jerusalem and with them were the prophets of God helping them. Haggai's preaching, build for God, build for God. He's doing it. Well, he's carrying some stones. He's getting calluses on his hands. He's go getting a tool or whatever he's got to do. He was working with them. He wasn't just sitting there up on his pulpit. 
as the man of God and just, you know, dissertating what people should do and not do and then just going like a fat cat and having lunch and sitting around while people just genuflect before him. No, he got down there in the trenches and he worked with people alongside him. He was one of them. He led from the middle, not from the back, not from the front. He led from the middle. He preached and he did what he preached. He practiced what he preached. And if you're going to be any kind of worker for God, you better not just be a mouthpiece. You better never get so proud that you can't fold a chair or carry a garbage bag or dry a kid's tear when he trips in the parking lot. You better be willing to work with them and not above them. Because you know what that spirit is that when you're above them? Laodicea. Which thing God says, I hate. So, you want to be a model worker? Haggai's got some good advice for you. So, thanks for being here tonight. And uh, I hope we build the right way. Keep building. Let's have a word of prayer.